If you go online and search how to buy meth, the U.S. Attorney General wants tech giants to flag you. The lead starts right now. Attorney General Merrick Garland grilled on Capitol Hill today from classified documents to abortion rights, fentanyl to rising crime. The wide-ranging topics have put Garland on the spot and five close calls in 2023. And it's only March 1st. The latest, a private plane came only 565 feet from a JetBlue flight loaded with passengers at Boston Logan. Are these, are these frightening encounters happening more often or just being reported more often? Plus, protests turning violent, the face-off between police and anti-Netanyahu demonstrators in Israel as crowds there call for a national day of disruption. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead and two high-profile hearings on Capitol Hill. In one room, President Joe Biden's embattled pick to lead the Federal Aviation Administration finally had his confirmation hearing after being picked nearly eight months ago. Republicans pressed Phil Washington, a 24-year Army veteran, about his limited experiences with aviation, pointing out that he's worked as an airport CEO in Denver for less than two years. That hearing comes just hours after CNN learned about another near collision involving a passenger plane at Boston's Logan Airport, less than 600 feet away from potentially crashing. And it comes as Attorney General Merrick Garland faced off with Republicans in a separate room on Capitol Hill. This was his first time testifying in front of a divided Congress. As CNN's Paula Reid reports, Garland fielded questions on everything from the documents, investigations into Biden and Trump to the opioid and fentanyl crisis to security for Supreme Court justices. Attorney General Merrick Garland faced furious lawmakers on Capitol Hill today. You are the attorney general of the United States. You are in charge of the Justice Department. And yes, sir, you are responsible. So give me an answer. His first appearance before Congress this year comes amid high-profile investigations into President Biden and former President Trump and their handling of classified documents. Garland warning that he would not reveal details of any ongoing probes. So that we do not jeopardize the viability of our investigations and the civil liberties of our citizens. But Garland was willing to explain why he has not appointed a special counsel to handle an investigation into Hunter Biden focused on taxes and other issues. I promised to leave the matter of Hunter Biden in the hands of the U.S. attorney uh, for the District of Delaware, who was appointed uh, in the previous administration. But after months of Republicans railing against the FBI for its search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, They didn't bring it up until four hours in. I approve the decision to seek a search warrant after probable cause was Overruling the FBI agents who did not want to do so. Garland repeatedly defended the department against accusations of partisanship. I also want to at least respond to your characterization of the department, which I vigorously disagree with. I believe the men and women of the department pursue their work every single day in a nonpartisan and appropriate way. As Republicans hammered him on protests at the homes of Supreme Court justices and other conservative causes. Your failure to act to protect the safety of the justices and their families was an obvious product of political bias. He acknowledged an FBI field office should not have sent a memo referring to radical traditionalist Catholics. It's appalling. It's appalling. Our department um, is... uh, 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 protects all religions um, and all ideologies. 
but denied targeting parents for complaining to their school boards. You directed your folks, though, to open threat tags on these parents I, I and, and, and investigate them. Yeah, I did not uh, uh, direct them. But Garland is clearly aligned with lawmakers no of both parties on one of the biggest issues facing Americans, fentanyl. Would you agree with me? Whatever we have is not working. Well, I, Whatever I, we're doing is not working. I, I agree with that because of the number of deaths yeah, that you so. pointed out. Another revelation in this hearing, something the attorney general usually only discusses in private conversations. He is a Swifty. Asked by lawmakers about the Justice Department's reported ongoing antitrust investigation into Ticketmaster, he assured lawmakers that he understands the importance of marketplace competition all too well. Jake. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Turning now to that other big hearing where Senators press President Biden's pick to lead the FAA, Phil Washington, on how he will handle a list of serious challenges facing that agency. As CNN's Pete Montine reports for us now, this comes as another near collision at an American airport is under investigation. It is the latest dangerous close call at a major airport, and now lawmakers want answers. Recent incidents have shaken the public's confidence. Monday night, a JetBlue flight and a private Learjet nearly collided on crisscrossing runways at Boston Logan International Airport. This was a mistake that was made by the pilot, and it was caught by air traffic control. The Federal Aviation Administration says as JetBlue Flight 206 was coming into land, the Learjet took off from an intersecting runway. Air traffic control recordings detail the JetBlue crew being advised to abort their landing. The FAA classifying the move as evasive action. We're going to land four right JetBlue 206. JetBlue 206, all right. 206, five, runway heading, maintain 3,000. Runway heading up to, uh, sorry, what's sitting on the altitude? 3,000. 3,000. JetBlue 206. Worse yet, the FAA says the Learjet did not have takeoff clearance. The crew was told to line up and wait, according to the FAA, on the runway for the landing JetBlue flight, but began a takeoff roll instead. Air traffic control brought the JetBlue flight back in for a safe landing, all on board unharmed. The pilots did a really incredible job. I mean, we we came in, it was a scary situation, but it was very smooth. The incident is the fifth of its type this year, following similar close calls at New York's JFK, Austin, Honolulu, and Burbank. One of many challenges facing the FAA, still without a permanent leader. Wednesday, senators took up the nomination of Phil Washington to head the agency, but called into question his lack of aviation safety experience. Have you ever flown a plane? Thank you for the question, Senator. No, I have never flown a plane. Aviation right now, we cannot think about uh, doing things the old way. Uh, And so I think uh, that a fresh perspective is needed. Obviously, uh, safety is number one. A confirmed leader of the FAA will have to answer for why these incidents apparently keep happening. The overall number of runway incursions nationwide went up last year. Flight Radar 24 says in this latest incident, these two planes came as close as 565 feet away from one another, Jake. We're talking less than two football fields. Yeah, Pete Montine, thanks so much. Let's bring in Michael McCormick. He's a former FAA control tower operator and an assistant professor of aviation science at Embry-Riddle University. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Are we experiencing a huge increase in near collusions or has it always been like this and we're just now hearing about it? The reality is, is that the number of what the Federal Aviation 
administration calls runway incursions. These are when an aircraft move on an active runway when they shouldn't be moving on to an active runway have not increased. We're actually running below the same time last year when you do a year-to-year comparison. However, they did increase in a previous year, but that's not because that the rate of events occurred. It was that the traffic volume went back up again post-pandemic. So last year was actually very similar, very close to what traditionally has been happening in remote incursions in the Federal Aviation Administration. Some of these near collisions, we've learned about five of them so far this year, some of them have involved passenger planes from airlines such as JetBlue or Southwest or American. Do you understand why some Americans might be starting to feel concerned uh, about safety and how whoever's in control of telling the planes where to go, whether or not they're being heated or whether or not uh, they're doing their jobs correctly? Certainly, I think it's important to differentiate between when you have an event that occurs and when you have an aircraft accident. None of these were aircraft accidents. The accident rate, especially for commercial passenger aviation, is extremely low and continues to be extremely low. However, that's not to say that these events aren't disconcerting. They are. Yeah. Michael McCormick, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Coming up in the wake of that shooting that killed a TV reporter and a nine-year-old girl in Orlando, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is now calling out what seems to be a pattern among some prosecutors, his choice words for one state's attorney, that's ahead, plus closing arguments underway right now on Alec Murdoch's murder trial and the day started with a trip by the jury to the scene of the crime. See if we can go back to some things we might be able to And we're back with our national lead. Right now, prosecutors are making their final case in a courtroom against Alec Murdoch. As you know, the former South Carolina attorney is accused of killing his wife and son in 2021. CNN's Diane Gallagher is outside the courthouse for us in Walterboro, South Carolina. Diane, what has the prosecution been focusing on? Yeah, Jake, we're in a 15-minute break right now for the jury to get a break from this intense closing argument from Prosecutor Creighton Waters. He began much like he has almost everything during this trial, if you've been following along, going way back in time on his timeline, talking about Alec Murdoch as a privileged man with a habit of stealing and lying and somebody who would do anything he could to keep that lifestyle up, including kill his own wife and son. But once Creighton Waters got to speaking about the actual murders, hitting hard on that 8.49 p.m., the last time that either Pat, Maggie or Paul Murdoch used their phones before they locked forever, and then discussing the minutes that they were killed, when the state believes that they were killed, the fact that Alec Murdoch lied about being there minutes before the state says they were murdered, and what likely happened in those moments. You've seen the diagrams and the crime scene photos that all those cases are in that area between the doorway to the feed room and where Maggie was found. You heard that Maggie had no defensive wounds. You also heard Paul and sibling from that first shot, a close range shot, with no indication that he detected a threat from the person who fired that weapon. And why? Because it was him. Same with Maggie. Because Maggie sees what happens and she comes running over there, running to her baby. 
probably the last thing on her mind, thinking that it was him who had done this. She's running to her baby while he's gotten picked up the blackout and opens fire at close range, again with no defensive wounds. Now, he talked about the feed room. He talked about the shed area there. The jurors actually got a chance to see those in person today. They took a trip with the judge, the defense attorneys, and the attorney general of South Carolina all there on scene. The only person who could speak to the jurors while they were at Moselle was the judge to look at those places, get a sense of how far away everything is. The media pooler that got to visit after the jury left said that they took steps to see how far away the spot where Paul's body was found was from Maggie's body. They said that between uh, the media pooler and another person who was there, 12 steps from one another, Jake. Now look, I will say that the prosecution began also by explaining what reasonable doubt means. And that kind of harkens back to their opening statement where they admitted that this case is mostly circumstantial. But according to Creighton Waters, the pieces fit to create the puzzle to convict Alec Murdoch. We will obviously hear the opposite from the defense. Jake, I anticipate we're also going to hear them talk a lot about reasonable doubt as well. Uh, whether or not they'll get to begin their closing arguments today, uh, that's still to be seen. But we are in the home stretch here as the Alec Murdoch double murder trial is beginning to end. All right, Diane Gallagher in Walterboro, South Carolina. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Joey Jackson and Misty uh, Maris. Uh, Joey, what stood out to you so far from the prosecution's closing arguments? Motive means an opportunity, Jake. That's what they are centering the closing argument about. And while I am not really bought into the motive issue with respect to this financial motivation and the world closing in and him feeling that is Mr. Murdoch that he needed to kill his family. Let's remember that motive is not something the prosecution must prove. Prosecutors like to talk about motive because it lets the jury know and identify with the purpose, the basis, the reason why a person may act in the way that they do. So even if the jury does not buy this motivation as to the financial incentive in the world closing in, the prosecution was strong to your question on the issue of means and opportunity. They boxed him in. What am I speaking about briefly? The timeline. There's a very specified timeline as to when this crime would be committed. Initial defendant said, I wasn't there. Well, guess what? There's cell phone data that puts you there. There's car data that puts you there. There's a videotape that you're not seen on, but you're heard on that puts you there. So what do you do? You change the story. And so I think the prosecution is boxing him in with regard to that timeline, eliminating that it could have been anyone but him, especially when they're talking about his cell phone and how the activity heightened on Alec Murdoch's cell phone after the murder. So that's what the prosecution is focusing in on. I think it's significant that they are. Why? because it lowers the specter of there being someone else who could have done it and lessens the reasonable doubt. And that's what this case at the end of the day will be all about for the defense when they get up to do their closing argument. And, and Missy, do you, do you agree that the timeline is the most important part of the prosecution's presentation so far? Because it just makes it very clear that Alec Murdoch had to have been there and had not been forthcoming about the fact that he was? 
Jake, absolutely. And to take Joey's point, which I completely agree with, with respect to the timeline, a step further, not only is the prosecutor bringing together all of the evidence we saw throughout the trial, but they're saying, look, we know this guy's a liar, but let's pretend like you believe his version of the facts from that night. Well, by virtue of his own timeline that he sat up on the stand and testified to, that he told you was what happened that evening, he's on a golf cart outside at eight uh, at eight forty eight p.m. mere minutes when exactly when this murder is allegedly occurred according to the prosecution's case so they're saying listen to him if you want to give him the benefit of the doubt his timeline puts him there and the next piece is no other explanation of what happened is feasible and that's where the prosecution has really been strong in this closing argument they said any coincidence that could have happened based on all the evidence you'd seen if you believe alec murdoch all of those coincidences must have come true in order for this not to have been done by Alex Murdoch. So very, very strong on the timeline aspect. And again, taking his own testimony and creating the timeline, not just from the cell phone evidence, not just from the the data, not just from the car data, not just from everything else, but his own words being used to create that timeline, which puts the defense in a very bad spot. And uh, you're looking at live images from the courtroom right now on the left side of your screen. Joey, uh, earlier today, the jury visited the crime scene I think it was the defense that requested that, right? How could that visit play into the deliberations? So it's very important, Jake. Why? Because it gives you a sense of what things are, how they are laid out, what the situation and circumstances were and could have been at that time. And remember what you do in a trial, Jake, is you're bringing the jury there, right? Obviously, they did it actually bringing bringing them there. But in a normal circumstance, you bring a jury there with photographs, you bring them there with surveillance, you bring them there with everything but going to the actual scene. And so I think this will give the jury context. It'll allow them really to see actually where everyone was at the time, where the crime scene took place. And I think they'll be able to better evaluate as they deliberate. Could this have been him? Were there other actors or is he indeed guilty? That's the open question. Misty, do you mind if I ask you right now how you would vote if you were on the jury? Look, I think phallus uh, and uno, phallus and omnibus. False in one thing, false in everything. If it were me, the lie about the kennel specifically would have sold me. And I would think, look, I, reasonable minds can differ, but I would think if you're lying about the absolute most critical fact, who was the last person to see your wife and your son alive and when? And that is the one thing you lie about. And by the way, Jake, that's the one thing you lied about as per your own testimony. He said, otherwise, I was really, really an open book. I let investigators ask whatever they wanted and search whatever they wanted. I just lied about that one thing. To me, there's no credibility there. And and I would be leaning towards guilty. That's just me, though. Reasonable minds can differ to the extent you have a juror or two who say he's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a scoundrel. He stole a lot of people's money. But I just don't think he's a cold-blooded killer. There, there you could see a hung jury. Yeah, so, and only that's, time will all, tell. that's all you need. Just one of them. Misty Maris, Joey Jackson, thanks to both of you. Tonight, join CNN anchor and senior legal analyst Laura Coates in a CNN primetime special, Inside the Murdoch Murders. It airs tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern only here on CNN. Coming up, a rare interview with someone inside the Iranian government, how the country's foreign minister tried to deny a recent wave of arrests and how CNN's Christiana Mampour pushed back.
It's been more than five months since 22-year-old Masa Jina Amini died in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. She was arrested for the crime of not properly covering her hair. Her death, her murder, sparked massive worldwide protests over Iran's repressive regime. In Iran, thousands have been jailed, at least four people have been executed, and dozens more may be at risk of execution. CNN's chief international anchor, Christiane Mampour, sat down with Iran's foreign minister. And Christiane, you pressed him on the widely reported human rights abuses there. What did he have to say? Jake, it's been really difficult to get official response from the Iranian government face-to-face ever since the death of Masa Amini and the brutal crackdown on protesters. But this week in Geneva, we did just that with the Iranian foreign minister. And of course, he said that there were no extrajudicial killings um, and he blamed a lot of the actual violence on foreign-based infiltrators, foreign-backed infiltrators. This is part of our discussion on some specific cases I put to him. When you say the Islamic Republic of Iran respects human rights, one female protester says that she was detained inside a revolutionary guard facility for more than a month and raped by three different men. She went to a cleric, a mullah, afterwards because she was having suicide thoughts. She was so upset. CNN spoke with that cleric. Is that acceptable? Is it acceptable for a woman, whatever she's done, to be arrested and raped. And there are many, many, many reports of sexual abuse in this situation against women and men. Firstly, in the peaceful demonstrations in the fall, no one was arrested. So you're just denying that? However, in those protests that had become violent, some individuals, some of whom who had entered Iran from the outside and were using firearms and killing the police, were arrested. You do know that the supreme leader actually issued an amnesty, and all those who were imprisoned were released, with the exception of those who had killed someone or were being sued. Regarding the Iranian woman that you mentioned, I cannot confirm it. There have been so many such baseless claims made on social media and in media. Okay, these, these are not baseless, and they weren't on the internet. It's CNN spoke to a cleric, a religious person inside your country, and got this story. We have seen some of CNN's reports that are targeted and false. That's not true. We, we, we report the facts, and we report the truth, and that's why you're sitting here with me, Mr. Foreign Minister. Now, of course, because of this crackdown, both the United States and Europe have been reluctant to go back into serious negotiations with Iran on the nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Both the United States and Iran, though, say they want to do it. And, of course, it's necessary to make a safer world. I asked the foreign minister about this, and he said the window is open from their point of view, but it may be closing. Here's that bit. We have a roadmap with the IAEA. And on two occasions, Mr. Aparo, Mr. Grossi's deputy, came to Iran in the past few weeks, and we had constructive and productive negotiations. And we have also invited Mr. Grossi to come and visit Iran soon. Therefore, our relationship with the IAEA is on its correct and natural path. And we have said this to the U.S. side, through mediators, that we are on the path to reach an accord. But if the Iranian parliament adopts a new law, then we'll have to abide by the Parliamentary Act. So the window for an accord is still open. 
but this window will not remain open forever. The U.S. party has been sending us positive messages through diplomatic channels. But in its media remarks, they make very deceptive remarks that are totally different. And really, as an Iranian foreign minister, sometimes I have serious doubts. And of course, this comes amid the fact that the IAEA, the UN nuclear agency, has said that it has found uranium uh, particles enriched to about 84%. That's very close to the 90% fissile material that could be used for a nuclear weapon. And your officials in Washington are now saying that, you know, Iran could, if it took a decision, break out into a nuclear weapon, at least one bomb's worth, within 12 days. The Iranians to this day blame President Trump for pulling out of the JCPOA and starting this rather dangerous route that everyone's on right now. Jake? Christian Mampour, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the major step by TikTok, done by no other social media company, to try to limit the screen time of younger users. Stay with us. Just into CNN, the FBI says it has arrested a man who tried to bring explosives onto a flight in his suitcase. CNN's team of reporters and analysts are following all the details. Let's start with Evan Perez. Evan, what happened? Well, Jake, this happened at the Lehigh Valley uh, Airport, which is uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, outside of Philadelphia. And uh, this man is uh, alleged to have brought uh, what, uh, what the FBI says were explosives onto, a, uh, onto an airplane. He was basically uh, putting it in a, in a suitcase and, and had it checked uh, to go through the security system. And that's when the alarms sounded uh, indicating that there might be some explosives. According to the FBI, they examined and they've x-rayed uh, the, uh, the compounds that were in this uh, device that were put on this, uh, on this, on this luggage, and they found that it uh, contained uh, the compounds that you find in uh, fireworks. Again, this is something that is commonly used to make homemade explosives. It's not clear what exactly he was planning to do with this. Uh, right now, uh, Mark Muffley, who again is from uh, the town of Lansford, Pennsylvania, is facing two charges. One of them is possession of an explosive uh, at an airport, uh, possessing or attempting to place an, uh, uh, an explosive or an incendiary device in an aircraft, uh, according to the FBI, as part of the, the, the uh, arrest uh, record here, uh, after they discovered the device on the, uh, in the luggage, uh, they paged the man uh, and had tr- to try to get him to come uh, talk to the security officers. Uh, he tried to leave the airport and was later arrested by uh, the local authorities there. Jake? Uh, let's bring in uh, CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. John, what are intel agencies doing right now to ensure this threat is over uh, and was just an isolated incident? Well, there's a big scramble, obviously, because first you've got to dig into Mark Muffy and say, who is this individual? Who was he in contact with? What is his background? Is he associated or affiliated um, with any particular groups that are advocating violence? Um, that's number one. Number two, you have to look at this and determine, was this a quantity of explosives, which is illegal on an airplane that was packed in a suitcase that was checked, um, or was this a device that contained explosives? The difference is, if it's a device, it could have an initiator. And if it has an initiator, that means it could have a detonator in terms of a timer um, or a clock or a signal that could come from a cell phone which would suggest it might have been programmed to go off while the plane's in flight. 
Now that's um, a lot of unanswered questions that aren't addressed in the document that, uh, that we have seen from the federal government yet, but it also could change the meaning. The types of explosives that were recovered were the kinds that are used in fireworks, which um, is one of those things where you say, well, fireworks, is that a bomb? Remember the Boston Marathon bombers uh, built their devices out of, uh, you know, the explosive black powder culled from fireworks that they brought commercially and then added into the device. So good news. Good news is, Jake, the system worked, which is he checked a bag which was going to go into the cargo hold. That went through the TSA's explosive sniffers, and those devices detected that. We get those false positives all the time, but they checked the bag, they found the material, um, and when they went to look for the owner, uh, he was beating it out of Dodge, which just adds more suspicion. It sure does. Um, we're getting uh, images uh, of this individual uh, right now, um, and they're, there they are brought to you. On your screen, uh, CNN's Pete Montine is at Reagan National Airport, which is uh, outside D.C. Um, Pete, how often do security incidents this serious happen at American airports? Very rarely, Jake, when it involves explosives, although it's really important to point out here that the TSA over and over again keeps finding guns and loaded guns, other types of weapons, at a very high rate in carry-on bags which they are not allowed in. In this case, though, we know it was a checked bag, which is even maybe more egregious because the TSA was able to pick this up as this bag went through security screening behind the scenes at Lehigh Valley International Airport. And that is so critical. You know, you've seen at airports, even here at Dragon National Airport, when you check your bag, you have to walk it over to get screened by the TSA. Some airports have that system in line, although the TSA is telling us that this was done during a routine check. Then they were able to page this man. They brought brought over a person to inspect this bag. They also brought over dogs, a TSA spokesperson tells me. So this is very, very serious. The issue in now, in 2023, is that the TSA just simply finds so many guns and weapons in bags because they say that people simply forget. So now we really need to know what the motivation was here. Uh, many times it's an accident. Although in this case, the big question is, was it an accident or was it intentional? And that is something, of course, the TSA will be asking, the FBI will be asking. We know that the Port Authority at the airport is involved as well. So many, many agencies and many, many layers here looking at this, just trying to figure out exactly how this happened and really what went wrong. Uh, as John points out, the good news here is that the system really worked and the layers of security that were put in place after 9-11 really were up to snuff here, and they were able to find these explosives in this check bag and were able to get them out. That is so key, and it really shows that the system worked here by the Transportation Security Administration, Jake. All right, uh, Pete Montine, Evan Perez, John Miller, thanks to all of you. Turning to our world lead now, violent scenes in Israel today as thousands of demonstrators took to the streets to protest Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's moves to weaken the country's independent judicial system, as according to critics. Israeli police lobbed stun grenades and fired water cannons at protesters who were attempting to block traffic in central Tel Aviv to oppose Netanyahu's plan, which has even come under criticism, even from Trump's normally very pro-Netanyahu former ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. CNN's Hadass Gold is live in Jerusalem for us. And Hadass, some of the protesters surrounded a hair salon where Sarah Netanyahu was inside, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's wife. Uh, tell us more about that. 
Yeah, Jake, I mean, these protesters said today was going to be a day of disruption, and it's definitely lived up to that. Just in the last few hours, there's been some very dramatic scenes in Tel Aviv where apparently Sarah Netanyahu went to get her hair cut at a salon uh, in the evening hours. Protesters seemingly found out where that was, and they surrounded it. They mostly seemed peaceful. Most of them were just yelling, uh, blowing horns, uh, making a bunch of noise, but it required a massive police presence to get her out, including helicopters, several dozen seemed like border police officers running into the street. Just very dramatic scenes, it seems, to get her out. And many of the protesters there were just shouting shame at the police officers and also shouting at them, where were you in Hawara? That's a reference to that Palestinian village where those two Israeli brothers were killed. And then there was, there was a rampage settler, Israeli settler revenge attacks. This, of course, following uh, the other dramatic scenes we saw earlier today in central Tel Aviv. More of these protesters. We've seen these protests for eight weeks now against these judicial reform, some of which would allow the Israeli parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions. But they've been peaceful until today. Jake. And Hadass, uh, Israel's finance minister, uh, he's one of the two extremists in the cabinet. His name is Betzalel Smotrich. Uh, he today said that the West Bank Palestinian town where two Israeli brothers were shot and killed on Sunday, uh, where the Israelis um, rampage, the settlers rampage, he said it needs to be erased, that town. Take a look. I think the village of Hawara needs to be erased. I think that the state of Israel needs to do this, and God forbid, not private people. He's saying that Israel needs to get rid of this Palestinian town. That sounds an awful lot like ethnic cleansing. Has Netanyahu said anything about this? Uh, Netanyahu has not directly addressed Smotrich's statements. The former prime minister, now opposition leader, Yair Lapid, essentially called it an incitement to a war crime. Smotrich was responding to a question about why he actually liked a tweet that said the same thing, and he essentially repeated himself. Now, afterwards, he tried to issue some sort of, I don't even know if I can call it a clarification, saying, I did not mean that we should wipe out the village of Wara, only to act in a targeted manner against the terrorists and supporters of terrorism and to exact a heavy price uh, from them in order to restore security to the residents of the area. The reason being Hawara, it's often a flashpoint city where there are clashes, there's violence between Israeli settlers and Palestinians. But this comment specifically is getting a really harsh reaction, including from uh, the U.S. State Department. Take a listen. These comments were irresponsible. They were repugnant. They were disgusting. And just as we condemn Palestinian incitement to violence, uh, we condemn these provocative remarks that also amount to incitement to violence. We call on Prime Minister Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials to publicly and clearly reject and disavow these comments. And Jake, uh, Netanyahu has not yet specifically responded to Smotrich's remarks, but I have to tell you that those remarks for Ned Price are some of the harshest remarks about an Israeli minister I think I've ever heard from the American government. Jake. Yeah, they're shocking. And his walk back, I didn't mean to say exactly what I said, was uh, interesting. Kadas Gold in Jerusalem. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Parents, heads up. The new feature coming to TikTok that could help limit the screen time of your kids. Stay with us. TikTok is rolling out a new default setting aimed at limiting screen time. It allows users younger than 18 to only use the app for one hour per day. But there does seem to be a workaround entering a passcode 
which would allow kids to keep scrolling past that one hour limit. Let's bring in CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, this one is timely for you because a sixth season of your yeah. great podcast, Chasing Life, explores how scrolling affects our brains and our health. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, I've been fascinated with this topic. Maybe, Jake, for some of the same reasons you would be fascinated by this topic. I have three teenage daughters, as you know. You have teenage kids, Alice, uh, as well. And, you know, it's, it's such a big part of their lives. And, and I interviewed my girls for this podcast, which I got to tell you is magic. I mean, we're close. We talk all the time. But having a two-hour conversation, not over a meal, not in a car ride, not on the phone, is a pretty magical thing. And all this is sort of, you know, in part driven by what have been some tragic trends with regard to mental health, Jake. We've talked about nearly 60% of teen girls say they have felt hopeless at one time or another. One in four teen girls say they have crafted a plan for for suicide. And these are gut punches. At the same time, these trends have been developing over the last decade and a half. There's been more social media. And I think that's what's driving a lot of these concerns. That's correlation, not causation, but I think that that's what's driving a lot of these concerns. We do know some things. For example, the average person will pick up their phone, Jake, some 300 times a day. They'll just pick it up 300 times a day. Look at it within the first 10 minutes. About half of people say they text people who are in the same room as them in, 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 instead of having a face-to-face conversation. So, you know, we know that there's a problem and the people who use social media the most are the most affected negatively. There's a lot of people now saying, hey, here's what you can do about it. And one of the things I think is driving this TikTok legislation is the idea of bringing the brain back online for a second. Maybe a code, punching in a code won't work, but maybe for some people they'll say, I don't need to keep mindlessly scrolling. And it just brings the brain back online. Other things experts recommend, they say, when you do pick up your phone, and again, most people mindlessly ask three questions. Ask what for, why am I picking it up, why now, and what else? What else could I be doing instead? And it sounds simple, Jake, just like entering a passcode on TikTok, but it could make a difference. All right. Good advice. What for? Um, You can find Sanjay's podcast, Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great one. I recommend it highly. Sanjay, thanks so much. Uh, Good to see you. I'm going to have to come up with an excuse to interview my kids for two hours. That does sound like a lot of fun. (laughs) Coming up, we're going to go back to Walterboro, South Carolina, the case prosecutors just made as they wrapped up their side of the closing argument. Stay with us. allowed him to borrow... Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, closing arguments in the Alec Murdoch murder trial. The prosecution just wrapped up after more than three hours. What's next before the jury gets to make the decision? Plus, a deadly disease once thought to be eradicated is now being passed from mother to child at alarming rates. And leading this hour, Ukrainian military commanders say they're still holding on to Bakhmut in the eastern part of the country as Russian forces keep up their assault. In the middle of the fierce battle, Ukrainian officials say an estimated 4,500 civilians remain in the city. CNN's Fred Plykin starts off our coverage today with a look at how Russian forces are now bringing in more experienced fighters from the Russian mercenary Wagner Group to try to secure a victory by any means necessary. Russia's view of what's currently the most bloody battle in Ukraine. State media releasing video of Moscow's troops hitting a Ukrainian armored vehicle in Bakhmut, the city devastated by months of relentless fighting. Here, mercenaries from the Wagner private military company show off a destroyed U.S.-made M777 howitzer while Wagner foot soldiers pose in a Bakhmut suburb. Even as they acknowledge they're on the back foot, the Ukrainians vow to fight on. 
We won't give up Bakhmut, the soldier says. We will hold on until the very last. Glory to Ukraine, death to the enemies. And Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin in an audio message acknowledges the Ukrainians aren't budging. The Ukrainian army is throwing extra reserves into Bakhmut and trying to hold the town with all their strength. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers are fiercely repelling attacks. Bloodshed increases every day. Wagner mercenaries are the spearhead of Russia's invasion force in Bakhmut. Prigozhin claims they're making progress, but often lack the ammunition to advance. I will say that a system needs to be worked out. I hope that this system will start functioning soon, and we will be getting ammunition regularly. The U.S. and Ukraine say the attrition rate among Wagner's assault groups, often made up of prisoners recruited from Russian jails, is as high as 80 percent. But Prigozhin's media channel is now trying to convey how Wagner is actually helping the convicts. In this film, a former inmate thanks the mercenary group. Wagner gave me freedom and hope. Hope that we have a chance. There are many guys who are ready to give their lives for their motherland and hope that our society is still not fully rotten. Ukraine says fighters like these are often little more than cannon fodder. Ukraine's president vowing to hold on, even as the Russians say it's only a matter of time before they take Bakhmut. Russia does not count people at all, sending them to constant assaults on our positions. The intensity of the fighting is only increasing. And Jake, just tonight, an official from uh, the uh, Donetsk People's Republic, of course, the Russian-occupied part of Ukraine, is claiming that even some of Ukraine's toughest units in Bakhmut are suffering heavy casualties and having to be rotated out, at least parts of them. Of course, the Ukrainians, for their part, are saying that their forces are clinging on, at least for the time being, not thinking of retreating from there. Jake? All right, Fred Pleitkin, thanks so much. Secretary of State Antony Blinken sent a forceful warning to the Chinese government that sending any lethal aid to Russia would lead to steep economic consequences. Blinken, while on his tour in Central Asia, said Beijing cannot act as if it's interested in peace at the same time it considers getting involved in Putin's war. This as the Belarusian president, a close ally of Putin, met with Chinese President Xi Jinping today, a meeting seen as a glaring sign of China's strengthening ties with Moscow. With me to discuss, Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. He's the chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Mr. Chairman, thanks so much for joining us. Um, You're on the House Armed Services Committee also, uh, which heard testimony from Undersecretary for Defense for Policy, Colin Call, yesterday, outlining the reasons why the Pentagon believes F-16 fighter jets are not a priority for Ukraine right now. He said they're too costly. They will require too much time to train Ukrainian pilots. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I think with respect to F-16s, they, they may be right. But I think the problem here is is the, the continuous debate that the administration has over any pieces of equipment. You know, we were, began the debate on whether or not we would send them tanks last fall. And now, as you just reported, there are these intense fighting areas in which tanks would be incredibly helpful. They're now moving. They're getting trained on German tanks. Uh, there was previously the, the Polish effort to get uh, MiGs, uh, former fight Russian fighters, into Ukraine. I think that's still a viable option. They're going to need 
some firepower in the air. Uh, it's, it's just a, an issue of how do we figure out how to do this, but I do think we need to shorten the time frame. When, when, there, when the crisis flares up, when it continues to be intense fighting, uh, we should have less debate and more action. Do you think Ukraine still has a chance to win this war? What does the intelligence tell you? Absolutely. Uh, first off, uh, they have the will to win. They have the will to fight. They're fighting for their country. Uh, this is a Russian aggression. Uh, this is not dis a fight over disputed territory. This is Russia trying to take their country, uh, with uh, Zelensky having rallied really the world to the understanding that this is a fight for democracy. Uh, the world has stepped up in providing them weapons and training. Uh, we just need to make certain that we give them what they need as quickly as, as we can so they can hold off the aggression from Russia. And what do you make of Secretary of State Blinken's warning to China? What consequences should there be for China if the government does end up sending lethal aid to Russia? This would be an incredible miscalculation and an escalation on the behalf of China. First off, this is not just a Russia-Ukraine conflict. It is certainly Russia making claims, even through all of Eastern Europe, putting at risk Poland, NATO countries, and the Ukraine. And what you have here, if, if China decides to come in on the side of Russia, you'll see Russian uh, use of Chinese weapons on European soil. And certainly China uh, is going to be facing uh, consternation from France, from Germany, from all of our NATO allies, that China would step into this conflict and, and use their weapons to try to shore up Russian efforts. So what consequences should there be, do you think, if they end up uh, arming Russia? Well, certainly sanctions, but I think the consequences are beginning because what, what this administration has done, which is a shift in U.S. policy, is to make public the fact that these issues are happening. It's not just that they're getting intelligence of these things. They're trying to impact the outcome by letting the, the uh, intelligence out, let people begin to have a debate on these issues, let Europe know that these weapons could be coming. All of the embassies across Europe are firmly letting China know this would be considered a red line. This is not where China needs to go. On the topic of China, um, the U.S. intelligence agencies seem quite divided on whether the coronavirus came from a lab leak in Wuhan or from animal to human um, contact uh, through a wet market. Um, I assume you've seen some of the intelligence, if not all of it. What do you think? Well, um the first thing I think is that when the Biden administration from the beginning started their 90-day uh, assessment of this and then issued a classified and an unclassified version of their report, um, we've said this publicly. It's been on our, our Intelligence Committee website. We believe that the unclassified report released by the administration does not accurately reflect the administration's own statements in their classified report. We've called repeatedly for them to release the classified report. We think there's no danger it being out there. And it would show what you're now seeing is the beginning of leaks, really chips in that armor of the administration spokespersons beginning to say, well, there's actually significant evidence that this was a lab leak. And I certainly think that in the end, with, when you look at all the evidence, it's very hard to conclude otherwise that it was not a lab leak. Oh, so you think it was a lab leak. Interesting. I so think there's certainly enough evidence for us to conclude that. I think there's more uh, evidence that needs to be gathered, but I think the administration discounting it has sort of stymied the efforts of getting to the bottom of this. I want to ask you about Havana syndrome because sources are telling CNN that this new assessment from the U.S. intelligence community, which says that they cannot link uh, Havana syndrome to any specific foreign adversary. There, there have been more than 1,500 reported cases of U.S. government officials complaining of dizziness, extreme headaches from 96 different, different countries. Do you think that this, in fact, was a targeted campaign from a specific 
uh, enemy? Well, uh, on my ranking member, Jim Himes, and I released a bipartisan statement when this report has come out. Uh, we certainly have grave concerns of those who have been impacted by these incidences. We do believe that the intelligence community is trying to uh, you know, dig into this to find out what the source is, to find out what the impacts are on these individuals. But we are uh, approaching their conclusion with a great deal of skepticism, having both reviewed the intelligence and met the individuals who have had these impacts. We think there's still more work to be, be done, and we have a commitment from both uh, Director Haynes of ODNI and uh, Director Burns of the CIA that, that those efforts will continue regardless of this interim conclusion. People at home uh, may or may not know what the Gang of Eight is. It's, uh, it's the eight uh, individuals who are leaders of the intelligence committees and, uh, and uh, leaders of Congress. Um, and you're one of them. Uh, you were part of the Gang of Eight briefing on the classified documents uh, found in the homes of Trump and Pence and Biden. Um, the de top Democrat and Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner and Marco Rubio, said they left the briefing, quote, they thought the, brief the briefing left, quote, much to be desired. Uh, do you agree? Did you learn anything new in that briefing? No, and it was it was very um, disappointing. But in addition, the fact that, that the uh, Department of Justice is trying to thwart Congress's efforts to have access to these documents so that we can assess them ourselves um, is, is a problem and it's certainly part of the continuing and ongoing debate. Even during the Mueller investigation, we had access to the root documents and the classified uh, documents that were being utilized by that investigation. Uh, in this, I think there's going to be bicameral effort to make certain the Department of Justice cough up these documents, let them be available to us. We need to be able to review them to get to the bottom of, you know, what is the problem here that we have the two vice presidents, a former president, um, and with uh, current President Biden, even as when he was a former senator, continue to uh, misuse uh, classified documents. We just had in front of our committee today, the archivist in front of the Intelligence Committee, and he indicated that we could use this as a non-classified statement, so he released it, that over, over 80 libraries that have received documents from members of Congress and, and others have contacted them saying that they received classified documents in the official records of retiring members. Um, and he also said that ever since Reagan, they've had difficulties of these documents being combined and, and misused. So we, we're going to have to do something to straighten this out. All right. Chairman Turner, thanks so much Thank for your you. time. Really appreciate it. Coming up, the prosecution just finished its closing arguments in the Alec Murdoch murder trial. We'll tell you the big takeaways from court next. Then, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wants an apology, but he might be waiting a while. Stay with us. In our national lead, the prosecution just finished its closing arguments in the double murder trial of Alec Murdoch. He is, of course, the disgraced former attorney in South Carolina, accused of killing his wife, Maggie, and their youngest son, Paul, back in June 2021. CNN's Diane Gallagher has been inside the courtroom in Walterboro, South Carolina. She's outside the courtroom now. Diane, how did the prosecution wrap? Jake, Prosecutor Creighton Waters, after nearly six weeks of this trial, wrapped it up by painting Alec Murdoch as a privileged man from a prominent family who they characterize as a thief and a liar, somebody who has a habit of lying until confronted with facts he could not deny, and then he would come up with new lies to explain those away. He hearkened back to Alec Murdoch's own testimony under oath on the stand, where he admitted to lying about part of his alibi, that he was at those kennels where his 
his wife and son were murdered minutes before the state says they were actually killed, something that he had lied about to his friends, his family and investigators from the night of the murders until he got on the stand that day. They closed by telling him, by telling the jury not to let him fool them as well. Everyone who thought they were close to him, everyone who thought they knew he was who he was, he's fooled them all. And he fooled Maggie and Paul too. And they paid for it with their lives. Don't let him fool you too. On behalf of the state of South Carolina, I ask you to return a verdict of guilty against the defendant, Richard Alexander Murdoch, for the murder of his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul, and for his possession of firearms during the commission of those malicious offenses. Now, the prosecutor also spent time explaining what reasonable doubt meant to the jury. Jake, I anticipate tomorrow when the defense gets up to present its closing argument, they're going to focus heavily on reasonable doubt, circumstantial evidence, and things like that as they try to prevent Alec Murdoch from being convicted of killing his wife and his son. All right, Diane Gallagher in Walterboro, South Carolina. Thanks so much. Closing arguments at the Murdoch trial are the focus of CNN primetime this evening. Join our own CNN anchor and senior legal analyst, Laura Coates, for the inside, for Inside the Murdoch Murders. That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up one week after a shooting that killed a Florida TV reporter and a nine-year-old girl, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is calling out a local prosecutor. Why he's calling her actions a failure. Stay with us. In our national lead, the Florida governor's office is demanding answers about the suspect arrested in the murders of a nine-year-old girl and a TV journalist last week in Orange County, Florida. Ron DeSantis' office sent a letter to the state attorney for Orange County, Monique Worrell, asking about the criminal history of the 19-year-old suspect, Keith Melvin Moses. The letter says, quote, the failure of your office To hold this individual accountable for his actions, despite his extensive criminal history and gang affiliation, may have permitted this dangerous individual to remain on the street, unquote. Before the murders, Moses was last arrested in November 2021 for marijuana possession. Charges were never brought. In a press conference earlier this week, Governor DeSantis went after State Attorney Worrell. You have to hold people accountable. This idea, and I know the district attorney, state attorney in in Orlando thinks that you don't prosecute people and that's the way that you somehow have have, uh, uh, a better community. That does not work. Now, Worrell recently responded to the criticism from DeSantis, telling a local news station that the amount of marijuana found on the suspect, Moses, was not enough to prosecute at the time of his 2021 arrest. She went on to say this. Any implication that my office does not prosecute cases is not based in fact. Nothing in Keith Moses' history that would have alerted anyone that he could be capable of committing a crime at the magnitude that he did. So Keith Moses did not fall through the cracks, but I'll tell you this, that doesn't mean that others do not. And when you have prosecutors who are doing the work of two, 
things will fall through the cracks. So if the governor wants to help public safety in the Ninth Judicial Circuit, he needs to fund prosecutors across the state. Now, Moses's 2021 arrest records revealed that he had multiple firearm possession charges that include first attempted degree murder and armed robbery on his record. Worrell said that Florida's juvenile justice system is not designed to handle violent juvenile offenders. The letter from Governor DeSantis's office gives Worrell until mid-March to comply with his office's requests for all records related to Moses or decisions about him and his 2021 arrest. Worrell's office says they're working to comply with the requests. Let's bring in CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. So, John, the prosecutor insists there's nothing she could have charged Moses with at the time of his November 2021 arrest. Governor DeSantis' office says there is. What's the truth? Well, she's probably right on this, which is he's arrested with a small amount of marijuana um, in Florida. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the state agency, won't even test an amount that small to verify that it's marijuana. So basically, the arrest is unprosecutable uh, based on the, the system that's set up. His more serious offenses occurred when he was a juvenile. Um, and these are things that happened in 2018, 2019, um, and earlier. So that is basically a separate system that is not controlled by the DA and not controlled by the courts. Jake, I think what we're seeing here is that uh, Governor DeSantis's problem with Prosecutor Worrell uh, is broader than this case. She is one of those many prosecutors across the country that, uh, whose, whose campaign was funded by super PACs paid for by uh, left-leaning billionaire George Soros, who was brought in on the idea of criminal justice reform, which is fewer people going to jail, fewer people going to prison, um, and that this is an ideological split uh, beyond this particular case. In recent weeks, we've seen backlash aimed at prosecutors. Um, there's this case in Missouri. A judge is going to decide if the state's attorney general can actually just replace the ADA for St. Louis. Kim Gardner, she's facing calls to resign after a teenage volleyball player from out of state was hit by a speeding driver. She had to have both of her legs removed. And police said that the driver of the car was out on bond facing felony charges and had violated the terms of bond 50 times before. Uh, Is it fair to blame this St. Louis prosecutor's office or is this uh, a system problem? Well, I think this is the trend we're talking about, Jake, which is uh, Kim Gardner uh, in Missouri is another prosecutor who was elected after receiving $116,000 from the George Soros Super PAC, uh, Safety and Justice, to bring that kind of criminal justice reform, which favors alternatives to jail or prison um, and, and other solutions. The real problem with this, which is a kind of a laudable social goal, is that the other side, not the criminal justice system side, but the social services side uh, that's supposed to pick this up, isn't really built out enough to handle it. So there's a, a wave against these prosecutors, and yet some of them get reelected. John Miller, thanks so much. Appreciate your insights. Turning to our politics lead today, in a letter to Fox Corporation Chairman Rupert Murdoch, Democratic leaders Senator Chuck Schumer and Congressman Hakeem Jeffries are demanding that Fox stop, quote, spreading false election narratives, unquote. Jeffries spoke about this earlier today. Perhaps it's time for America 
to be able to move past that big lie, and an important step would be those who know it was a big lie to publicly repudiate it. This demand comes in the wake of those damaging, damning depositions and communications and Dominion's lawsuit against Fox, revealing the top hosts and executives knowingly aired and even spoke election lies on the network, knowing they were lies. Let's discuss with former Democratic South Carolina State Representative Bakari Sellers, along with the editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, Jonah Goldberg. We should note that Jonah was subpoenaed and deposed by Dominion in its lawsuit against Fox, and we're not going to ask him about that. He can't talk about it. But Jonah, let me start with you. You can't talk about your deposition, but you can talk about Rupert Murdoch's. Uh, You were with Fox for many years. Were you surprised by all the candor and admissions that, yes, we were spreading lies and we knew it was lies, but we did it because of money and ratings. Yeah, I mean, there's this weird dichotomy between shock and surprise. Um, I'm not really surprised, but Rupert Rupert Murdoch is a canny, smart player. And when he just baldly says this wasn't about red or blue, this was about green, talking about why he put Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, back on air because he's a big advertiser, you could almost hear his, you know, Rupert's lawyers taking out the black tar heroin and and tightening the, <laughs> the, the 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 cinch on their arms. I mean, like like it's amazing that he would say some of these things and not try to obfuscate or dodge the question. And time and time again, uh, both in the text messages and in the depositions, you have senior Fox executives just saying the quiet part out loud over and over again. And it's really it's it's really compelling, even if there's, you know, more that we need to know from the Dominion response, because, you know, again, this is essentially a prosecutor's brief, but it's very hard not to see this as as, as overwhelmingly persuasive on the thrust of it. So, Bakari, let me p- play a little game with me. You'll like it. If MSNBC's chair admitted under oath that their hosts lied to their progressive viewers just for ratings about a topic that had caused a deadly riot at the Capitol against a Republican president, what do you think the response would be by Fox or by Republican members of Congress? Oh, they would threaten to burn it completely down. I mean, I, I think that we all know what that response would be. And it, it's unique that you asked that question. And I think it's a very good question because we now know that many of the hosts over at Fox News, the Tucker Carlson's, the Sean Hannity's, they get the leeway to say whatever they want to say, whether or not it has veracity or not. It's 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 something that I would argue that Jake Tapper doesn't have. It's something I would argue that Joy Reid doesn't have, that you just don't have that leeway. And Jake, in your case specifically, don't have that want to go out there and mislead viewers the way that we now know Fox News hosts and contributors did. And I think that's a fundamental problem. And I think that and, and Jonah knows Rupert Murdoch better than I. I. I don't know him at all. He probably doesn't know me from a can of paint. But I would also go a step further and argue that um, uh, Rupert Murdoch has not only tarnished and damaged his legacy, but he's also done a, a great deal of damage to democracy throughout the world or democracies throughout the world. Because these lies fundamentally erode what we believe um, our democracy to be. And the fact that he had his soldiers and lieutenants carrying it out should be a problem. But no, I don't believe any host at CNN or any host at MSNBC particularly can get away with the same things that Tucker and Sean get away with, particularly with these lies. So, Jonah, there's now attention turning toward the Fox Board of Directors. One of its members, um, former Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan, 
uh, is trying to defend um, his role behind the scenes in a new interview with Charlie Sykes. Take a listen. If you are on the board of directors of a Mm. company that is pumping toxic sludge, racism, disinformation, and attacks on democracy, if you don't stand up now, then when? I do. I have a responsibility to offer my opinion and perspective, and I do that, but I don't go out on TV and do it. Right. So I have a responsibility. But do you? I do. I do. I offer my perspective and my opinion often. I think Fox is a big part of the constellation of the conservative movement. It really is. the solution or the problem? Oh, no, I I think it's going to have to be a part of the solution if we're going to solve the problem in the conservative movement. What do you think, um, Jonah? Is Fox, um, obviously they disagree. Is he part of the problem or part, is Fox part of the problem or part of the solution when it comes to conservatives? Yeah, I mean, I, I had this very conversation with Paul Ryan myself, full disclosure. He's a friend of mine. And I got to say, I disagree with Paul in a, to a certain extent insofar as I think turning the ship around. Look, I was at Fox News for 12 years. I will still defend to this day a lot of the people on the, in the news division who, you know, look, we know from these filings, we're trying to push back on this, which is why Tucker and some people wanted to get them fired because they were fact checking the nonsense that was coming from the opinion side. And that was what was it, pissing off the executives. So, I mean, I think it's a more nuanced problem than a lot of people want it to be. At the same time, I think Paul is very sincere and honest when he says that he's counseled this from the get-go, that, that, that this stuff is poisonous to the Fox brand, it's poisonous to conservatism. I just think with the current leadership at Fox, particularly Susan Scott, the CEO, who basically just gave the booze and car keys to the fastest drivers, <laughs> um, uh, is not, um, uh, is not per- currently situated to make that transition. But yeah, if, if, if the conservative movement and the Republican Party um, can't turn Fox around and make it a constructive part of American discourse and democracy and journalism, then it's bad for the country, but it's also bad for conservatism. And I think Paul, Paul Ryan, at the end of the day, cares a lot. You know, he's a party guy. He's a, he's a movement conservative. He cares about those causes and those institutions. I just think that the, the, the task cut out for him to institute reforms from within is, is Herculean. Bakari, last thoughts? No, I'm just admiring uh, Jonah's very vivid analogies that he's using today. Uh, but I, I actually agree. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with with what uh, Paul Ryan said, especially when it comes to the fact that if the conservative movement is going to change, if they're going to root out these cancers, then Fox is going to be a big part of that. The question I have, though, is can they do that under the leadership of Rupert Murdoch? Can they do that under their current leadership? I think that's the largest question after reading those depositions. Bakari and Jonah, thanks so much. Appreciate both of you. Backlash for the Biden administration after the White House embraces border policies as strict as ones from the Trump administration. Coming up, we're going to talk to the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandra Mayorkas. Stay with us. In our national lead, the Biden administration is embracing some tougher border policies, ones similar to ones that they previously rejected. And now we know why. Sources tell CNN that the administration, quote, went from not wanting to do tough stuff to realizing they have no choice, unquote. The policy echoes some of what the Trump administration did. That change not sitting well with many of the president's fellow Democrats. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us now with her new reporting. Priscilla, um, some of Biden's allies say that this new policy is essentially Trump 2.0. So why did the White House go for it? 
Well, Jake, the reality on the ground is that border crossings remain high and there are still concerns within the administration about a surge of migrants when a COVID-era border restriction is expected to lift in May. So that leaves the administration having to resort to tougher enforcement measures, and it puts them at odds with their own allies. In fact, one source close to the White House described the policy to me as basically putting lipstick on a pig. So what does it do? This is a policy that would largely bar migrants from seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border if they transited through other countries and didn't seek refuge there. That's something that the Trump administration also tried to do. Now, administration officials reject the comparison. They say this is not a ban on asylum and that they are trying to open up legal pathways for migrants to still have the option to legally come to the United States. But, Jake, this is something Something that came up before uh, back in 2021. And now it is now considered palpable as they have to stomach harder decisions when they're facing mass movement in the Western Hemisphere and as numbers continue to creep up along the U.S.-Mexico border. Of course, administration officials will tell you this is the policy that they have to take while they wait on Congress to try to pass some immigration reform. Jake. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, thank you so much. Joining us now, the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, who today marked the 20th anniversary of the creation of DHS uh, right after the 9-11 terrorist attack. Secretary Mayorkas, thanks for being here. Um, We'll talk about that in a moment. But but first, I want to ask you about the border issue. Um, It seems a real vulnerability for President Biden going into the 2024 presidential election. And this policy that you're now embracing is one that was floated nearly two years ago and shot down. So why the 180? And do you think possibly the Biden administration moved too quickly early on to get rid of Trump policies? Uh, Jake, we are doing so much to tackle the challenge at the border, and it is indeed uh, a challenge. Fundamentally, what we need is new legislation to fix what everyone agrees is a broken immigration system. That is the fundamental problem. But within a broken immigration system, we are doing so much. On January 5th, most recently, we implemented policies uh, that provide a safe, lawful, and orderly way for individuals from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela to arrive in the United States and not place their lives in the hands of ruthless smugglers. We have seen the populations from those four countries drop more than 95 percent in terms of encounters at the southern border, and people are accessing the lawful way to come to the United States, the safe way. That is the model that we are embracing, that we are implementing, and it is proving successful. Your critics, and they're not only Republicans, uh, say that the border is just a catastrophe. Um, The facts are that cities are overwhelmed with the humanitarian needs of migrants. The numbers of people crossing illegally are at record levels. Fentanyl is being smuggled across the border, mostly by American citizens, we should note. And that fentanyl is going into the country and killing thousands of Americans. These are major crises Other than legislation, what do you need to address them better? Is there really nothing, no other tools in your arsenal? Well, Jake, let's let's separate the two issues, because um, 
individuals are conflating the challenge of migration and the challenge of fentanyl for political purposes. But the fact of the matter is the migrants whom we encounter in between the ports of entry are not the primary means by which fentanyl is coming into the no, United No, no, I said States. that. I mean, I said Contrary. mostly by American citizens are bringing yeah. in the fentanyl. Yeah. But, but yes, it, but it's being brought in primarily through the ports of entry. And this has been a challenge, not just over the last two years. We unfortunately have seen tragedy at the hands of fentanyl for quite a number of years now. It's been growing year over year. The immigration system has been a challenge and we do need fundamental legislative reform. In the meantime, we're doing what we can within our administrative authorities. With respect to fentanyl, and the tragedy that arises from its use, we have been surging resources since day one. We've been attacking the trafficking organizations, the people, their instrumentalities, their financial methods. This is an all of government effort, and we're only continuing in that effort, not just domestically, but with our international partners at all. There are two primary elements to the battle against fentanyl, the supply side, and the demand side, and those are not exclusive of one another. And that has been the challenge in the war on drugs for decades. Fentanyl poses a unique challenge. You know, in my first 12 years of government, I was a federal prosecutor. I did, uh, I prosecuted traffickers of marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, black tar heroin. We've not seen anything like fentanyl. Uh, it is chemically made, it is synthetic, it is highly addictive, and it is fatal. We have got to really educate the American public uh, about it. We have got to tackle the demand for controlled substances. And at the same time, we have got to attack the traffickers of this poison. And that is indeed what we are doing. Um, today, President Biden commemorated the 20th anniversary of the Department of Homeland Security. Y your department uh, was born out of the horrific events of September 11th, 20, uh, 2001, and your department has not stopped evolving since, uh, since I think uh, former Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge was the first uh, DHS secretary. What is the biggest homeland security threat the U.S. faces today? Jake, the, um, the threat has indeed uh, evolved significantly. We have a dynamic threat landscape before us. I will tell you, 20 years ago, we weren't worried about cyberspace, cyber criminals from across the world victimizing our critical infrastructure, hospitals, schools, police stations, and the like. Uh, and now we have a cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency that tackles the cyber threat and protects Americans from it. 20 years ago, we were focused on the foreign terrorists who sought to enter the country and do us grave harm. Now, uh, that threat, by the way, persists, but now we also have tremendously prominent the domestic violent extremists, the individual already here in the United States radicalized to violence because of an ideology of hate, a false narrative, anti-government sentiment, and other uh, ideologies spread on social media. Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, thanks so much. Thank you, Jake. Coming up next, the alarming 700% spike in a dangerous disease that mothers are passing on to their newborns. 
And we're back with our health lead and an alarming spike in cases of syphilis in babies. Congenital syphilis rates have increased by about 700% in the past 10 years because mothers, unaware that they're infected, are passing the sexually transmitted disease to their child during pregnancy. As CNN's Elizabeth Cohen reports, that exposes babies to dangerous health conditions and in some cases, an early death. Yes, we're losing a lot of men to venereal disease, Colonel. Thank you. You can see for yourself. World War II government health campaigns like these warned U.S. soldiers about the dangers of syphilis. It took decades, but eventually there was success. This 1999 report showing syphilis cases dramatically reduced, with cases plummeting to record lows. But now, syphilis rates are back up again. Preliminary CDC data showing a 68% increase in cases from 2017 to 2021. Venus Johnson is one of the youngest victims. Her mother passed syphilis on to her during pregnancy. I thought my grandchild was going to die before she even had a chance to live. Danae Johnson, Venus's grandmother, says Venus's mother felt sick when she was about five months pregnant. I took her to the hospital and they just uh, sent her away. She says the syphilis was caught and treated just two weeks before delivery. Good girl. But by that time, Venus's lungs had already been permanently damaged. Now she gets sick often, had RSV last fall, and was on a ventilator and in the hospital for a month. Other children born with syphilis have suffered liver problems or even become deaf or blind. Congenital syphilis rates have increased about 700% in the past 10 years. In 2021, more than 2,600 babies born with the infection, more than 200 of them died. Part of the problem? Success decades ago at getting syphilis rates down. Syphilis and congenital syphilis are things that many doctors have not seen in their careers. And so it's so important for people and for providers to be aware of the fact um, that syphilis has returned. Venus's illness, other babies' deaths, could have been prevented with one of the oldest and cheapest of drugs, penicillin. It's something that we really should be able to eliminate in this country because we have the ability to screen and properly treat everyone. So now a fight from 80 years ago. If we could have discovered the condition of the mothers before the fifth month of pregnancy, we could have treated them and the children would have been born perfectly healthy. That fight is back again. A disease that was once on its way to being eliminated in the U.S. has returned. There are several reasons why syphilis rates have gone up recently, and one of the big ones is money. As syphilis rates went down, public health uh, infrastructure started spending less money on screening for syphilis. With less money, less vigilance, the bacteria once again was able to take a hold. Jake? Elizabeth Cohen with an important story. Thank you so much. Turning to our national lead now, California is expected to see even more snow today as that state recovers from devastating back-to-back winter storms. These photos are from Yosemite National Park, which is currently closed and has no reopening date as of now, after some parts got 15 feet, 15 feet of snow. Many areas of California have been walloped with significant amounts of snow in recent days, which is, to say the least, an unusual occurrence for a state not used to tough winters. More than 100,000 customers there are currently without power. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode 
of the show, you can listen to the lead from whence you get your podcasts all two hours, just sitting there like a delicious peach. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the situation. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.